We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles, but most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible that are known as the Gospels. And today we're going to begin in chapter 24 of the first Gospel, which is the Gospel of Matthew, if you wanna begin turning there, chapter 24. And I encourage you to be a skeptic Today, I encourage you to not believe a single word I say. In fact, I would love it if you didn't believe a single word I said, but instead went to the Bible for yourself to see if these things are actually true. Because if you're gonna be somebody who takes truth seriously, you're gonna need to check it out for yourself. And our goal today and every time we gather together is to simply let the Bible speak for itself. I don't have an agenda about making it say anything. I just wanna make sure we understand what it is saying as plainly as possible. Last week we were in the third part of this famous message that Jesus taught called the Olivet Discourse. It's named after the location where this teaching was given the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And it's a well-known message because its content is so compelling. In it, Jesus talks about the future, including the end times, the last days, and he makes some incredible prophecies and predictions. And one of the reasons we take them so seriously is because some of them have already come true and are documented and recognized by all historians, while other prophecies that Jesus gives in this teaching are yet to be fulfilled. We believe they'll be fulfilled in the near future. If you missed any of the last three weeks, I encourage you to listen online and catch up because it really is fascinating stuff. This week, we're simply gonna continue on from where we left off. Well, let me ask you, first of all, have you ever had a moment in your life when you were absolutely, indefensibly, irrevocably caught in a situation or circumstance you should not have been? I'm not gonna ask you to share the memory that's running through your head right now, but most of us should probably be thanking Jesus for his mercy and forgiveness right about now. If there were ever a situation where you had the potential to be caught in a position you shouldn't be in, and you had a good friend who knew that you were about to be caught, you would expect that friend to give you a heads up, right? Or you'd say, well, they're probably not a real friend. The Bible says, that Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And today, Jesus is going to do just that. He's going to warn us about a future situation where we could potentially be caught in a position we shouldn't be in. And if we are caught in that position, we'll not only be embarrassed, we will, more importantly, be immediately filled with overwhelming regret. So let's give our attention to Jesus and his word because I believe none of us can afford to miss the heads up that Jesus is going to give us in today's study. We're going to find as we read through today's text that Jesus is gonna be talking about the rapture, that future time when Jesus is going to come for his church, all believers on the earth, and remove them from the earth and take them to be with him safely in heaven before he begins pouring out his judgment on the earth. And in verse 36, Jesus says, but, and then underline this, of that day and hour, no one knows. Have that underlined. Of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but, and then underline, my Father only, my Father only. And in case you're missing the implication, Mark's gospel makes it even more clear. And Jesus says specifically, the son does not know. Jesus is saying he doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. Only the father does. Jesus doesn't say 
that no one knows the season or the year or the month or even the week. He says the day and the hour. The clear goal of Jesus here is to put a stop to date setting when people say things like Rosh Hashanah 2017, that's when the rapture is going to happen. Because when you examine everything Jesus says in this Olivet Discourse teaching, it becomes clear that he wants his servants, you and I, to recognize the season of history when the end times are rapidly approaching. Yet he wants us to stay away from specific dates. But I want you to know that he's told me the specific date. And I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Only God the Father knows the exact date of the rapture. Go ahead and write that down. That's your first fill-in. Only God the Father knows the exact date of the rapture. It is astonishing to me how clear this is in the Bible that we still have people under the umbrella of Christianity who will put a date on things and will store up supplies or will go have a camp or something. It's astonishing because Jesus says clearly here, nobody knows, only the Father knows. Now isn't it interesting that the angels, the Holy Spirit, and even Jesus do not know when the rapture is going to take place. And, and I just have to stop for, for a second just to bring this to your attention. It's a very, very interesting piece of theology because in the upper room discourse at the Last Supper, which is going to happen very soon in our, in our study, Jesus is going to talk about how he and the Father are one. And so from that, we sort of develop our theology of the Trinity that they share absolutely everything. And yet... Apparently, there is at least one thing, one piece of information that has not been shared. And this also interests me because in our attempts to explain the Trinity, some Christians will describe God as being one being who manifests himself in different ways. So he manifests himself as a human so we can relate to him as a human. He manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Yet this one little verse here proves that the Trinity is made up of three distinct individual beings and personalities who are individual enough that one of them can know something that the other two do not. I'm not going anywhere with these points, but I just want to bring them to your attention because any little bit of information we can get about the Trinity is valuable because I don't think there's anybody who really grasps the Trinity. But it's a little bit of detail that might help us have a little bit more accurate understanding of the Trinity. If you're wondering, why doesn't the Father tell Jesus and the Holy Spirit when the rapture will take place? I gotta be honest, I have no idea. I know the Father has a reason but that's all I know. I heard some pastors speculate, well, it's because God wants to take Satan by surprise with the timing of the rapture. And the only problem I have with that is you're implying that Jesus can't keep a secret. Like if he told Jesus, Jesus would blab. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jesus could keep a secret. So that doesn't hold water for me as an explanation. So we'll just have to find out later what the father's reason was. And just in case any of us aren't connecting the dots, this verse is why you don't read or share articles or videos of people claiming to have figured out the exact date of the rapture. They're actually committing heresy by claiming to know what Jesus himself said they couldn't. And if I ever see any of you guys sharing anything like that on Facebook, I'm going to spam your comment section with this verse over and over and over again because only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. Now, Jesus is going to tell us more about what the world is going to be like just before the rapture takes place. Let's read verse 37 together. But as the, and then underline, days of Noah were, 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus pulls out Noah and Noah's day as an example for us. And he tells us the specific parallel that he wants us to notice. Noah got a word from the Lord. I'm going to flood the earth, Noah, and I want you to build a boat. For 120 years, 120 years, Noah preached the gospel of repentance to the people around him, telling them that disaster is soon going to come upon the earth in the form of God's judgment and it's gonna be awful for anybody who hasn't repented and turned to God. But they just laughed at Noah. They just called him crazy, building a boat in the middle of dry land, and they carried on with their lives, oblivious to the disaster that would soon befall them. You know, it's like today, because people say, yeah, I see some signs that things are going on. I see natural disasters. I see many attempts to create a one-world government. The latest trend seems to be through environmental legislation. I see governments creating big brother states with limitless surveillance. I see the rise of radical Islam marching across the earth. I see some signs, but, but first, let me take a selfie. What, what were we talking about again? Oh, never mind, never mind. Signs everywhere, but nobody really cares. Nobody really cares. Noah's there building this giant boat, preaching repentance. Eh. On the day it rained, most likely for the first time in history, people were going about life as usual. They were having dinner with friends. They're having parties. They're getting married. They're accumulating wealth. They're making plans for the future. And they never saw the flood coming until it was too late. And they pounded on the door of the ark when they realized what was happening. But the Lord was the one who had sealed the door of the ark and they couldn't get in. Jesus says, it's gonna be like that just before the rapture takes place. Most of the world is just gonna be busy with their daily lives, ignoring the gospel, refusing to repent, seeing the signs but shrugging their shoulders and not making anything of it, oblivious to the fact that Jesus is about to judge the earth. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't describe the world as being some sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland when the rapture happens. And that's just a little note for those people who believe that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the great tribulation. Jesus is, he's not describing a world that's been devastated by tribulation. He's describing life going on as normal, the usual daily stuff happening. And when you pair this description with the other signs Jesus gives, because he does say there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes. The best way to say it is probably like this. You can make a note of this. Just before the rapture takes place, Life on earth will be business as usual in a very unusual time. Business as usual in a very unusual time. There's signs everywhere, but not the kind of signs that make normal daily life impossible to live. It'll be business as usual in a very unusual time. And I don't know how else to describe the world that we live in right now other than to say it's business as usual in a very unusual time. All the daily stuff keeps happening. We just had Black Friday sales, but... The world is falling apart when you take a step back and look at the big picture. I also noticed that when Jesus talks about Noah, did you notice this? He talks about him literally. He doesn't talk about him as though he's a fable or someone who didn't really live. He talks about Noah being literally true the same way he talks about Jonah and the fish that swallowed him. 
In fact, whenever Jesus talks about Old Testament accounts and people, he always speaks of them literally. That's why when someone says, you know, I heard that Noah's Ark was just a fable passed down through oral tradition, I really don't care. I trust what Jesus says about them because all of those theories end up being proven wrong anyway. So I'm gonna stick with the one who said he himself was the way, the truth, and the life, and so should you. You need to believe Jesus before you believe some professor who's getting high on his own intellect. You don't need to argue about things in the Old Testament that Jesus said were real. The issue is always, is Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, God, if Jesus really rose from the dead proving himself to be God, then he is God. And if he says something is true, then it's true. End of discussion. So don't waste your time on foolish topics of conversation. Choose to believe Jesus. The issue is always Jesus. Make a note of this. Jesus always talks about Old Testament characters and accounts as being literally true. Literally true. And you know what's so interesting is all the ones that people go after and say, oh, well, Daniel didn't really exist. Well, all of those guys, Jesus authenticates all of them during his time on the earth. Last week, we talked about what the rabbis call a remez, a truth that's hidden under the surface in the scriptures that requires a little bit of digging. And last week, we looked at the remez of political Israel and the parable of the fig tree. And some of you will know that I personally believe there's another remez in Jesus' reference to the days of Noah. You see, there are many other biblical examples of sudden catastrophe befalling a group of people or a city, but the Lord specifically chose the days of Noah. And so if you'd like to know more about that, we're not going to get sidetracked today. We don't have time to discuss it, but you can go online and listen to a teaching on that subject on the website. I've put the info you'll need on your outline. Remez is basically, it's not the main point that Jesus is making. The main point Jesus is making here is that people are going to be going about their daily business oblivious to the destruction that's about to come upon them. That's the main point. But buried beneath that is some interesting parallels and information if you want to dig into that on your own time. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus is speaking here of the rapture, but you'll find I have to just mention this because you're going to run across it. You'll find many good scholars who will say, no, because it's being likened to Noah's day, Jesus is talking about one being taken away in judgment while the other one is left. I'm going to tell you, if you find yourself wondering about this, I disagree with that view because Jesus uses a completely different root word in the original language for taken in verse 40 than he uses for the word took in verse 39. They're completely different words. If you want to dig more into that, Bible students, blueletterbible.com, use the interlinear feature, and you can read up about the original words if you want to geek out on that. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. So you're getting the picture that Jesus is painting. There's gonna be an instantaneous event that will result in one person being removed while the other person is left. And when it happens, people are gonna be doing everyday things. It's gonna seem like just another day. Verse 42, watch, underline watch, therefore. Did you catch that that is a command from the Lord Jesus? It's a command for you and I. Why do we care about this end time stuff? Why do we talk about the return of Christ? Because Jesus commanded us to. He said, watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house, underline master of the house, had known what hour the thief, underline thief, would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is interesting, because the view that I hold to is not the commonly taught view, and it certainly wasn't when I was growing up in the church. But after studying this, I really believe it's the one that makes the most sense. Some of you have heard us talk about this before. In verse 43, the house is idiomatically the earth. It's a reference to the earth. So understanding that, who then idiomatically is the master of the house? It's not Jesus. Who does the Bible say is the ruler of the earth right now? It's Satan. So go ahead and make a note of that. The master of the house is Satan. So then who is the thief, strange as it may sound, and we'll unpack this. The thief in this case is Jesus because Jesus is going to come and steal away his church from the house, the earth, at a time that's going to take Satan by surprise. He is going to be surprised. To Satan and non-believers, Jesus is gonna seem like a thief when he comes and takes his church. And just in case this thief illustration scares us, the Apostle Paul shares this in 1 Thessalonians 5. I put this on your outline. The Apostle Paul says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you, underline you, have no need that I should write to you, underline you. Then underline the rest of this verse here. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So what Paul is affirming is what Jesus has just said. He's saying you believers know that when Jesus comes for you, it's gonna be like a thief in the night. Now notice that he begins to speak about a different group. Not the you who are believers, but the they who are non-believers. Paul goes on and says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, not you, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And then underline this, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. This day isn't gonna come to you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. This is what Paul is saying. He's pointing out the same thing that Jesus is saying. To believers, Jesus is not going to come as a thief. He's not gonna seem like an unwelcome surprise, an attack. To non-believers, Jesus is going to seem like a thief when he comes for his church. The day's not gonna overtake us like a thief. It's gonna be the greatest moment of our lives when it happens. But that day is gonna be catastrophic for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Then he goes on, Paul, and he says, therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For, and then underline this, I love this verse, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So please understand what Paul is saying. When he talks about wrath, he's not just speaking about long-term wrath, hell. He's speaking about the wrath that's going to come upon those who are on the earth when those who love the Lord are taken. 
And he says, that's not our destiny. That's not the appointment we have. We have an appointment to salvation, to be with Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify. That means encourage one another. The idea is with this knowledge, just as you also are doing. What will be a most glorious event for believers will be a most terrible event for non-believers, for it will mark shortly the beginning of the most tumultuous season of history the world has ever known. And so Paul tells us, hey, don't tune out and waste your time on meaningless things in life. Don't fall asleep in terms of your priorities and your focus. Don't get caught up in sin. Stay righteous and encourage each other to do these things because Jesus is coming back soon. And I want to highlight verse 44 one more time. He says, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I think the best way to interpret this is to say, hey, you need to be ready for Jesus to come sooner than you expect, and you need to be ready for Jesus to come later than you expect. You need to live ready for either scenario. And that really is the healthy balance. Please hear me on this. I believe Jesus could come back today, but guess what? I still have life insurance. I still have life insurance. Jesus could come back in a month but that doesn't mean you should max out your credit cards on Cyber Monday tomorrow. Stick it to the man. I need to be ready for Jesus to come back today, and I need to be ready for him to come back in 30 years. So make a note of this. The believer is called to live ready to be taken by Jesus at any moment. You need to live ready to be taken by Jesus at any moment. So at this point, I'm going to ask you to actually flip ahead in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 21. We're just going to be jumping around a little bit today because we're going through this in the order that Jesus taught these things. So we'll jump to Luke 21. Luke 21 verse 34. Now Jesus says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, just means partying, drunkenness, and cares of this life, concerns about things in this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For, underline, it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. It will come as a snare, a trap, on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. If you were with us in the book of Revelation, you'll know this. If you weren't, let me explain. In the book of Revelation, every reference to those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers is always a reference to those who love the earth more than they love heaven. They're non-believers, those who don't love the Lord and wanna be left alone to be their own God. So when we're told that the rapture will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth, we don't need to be worried. It's not talking about us. Those who don't love the Lord need to be worried, need to be concerned. It's gonna come as a snare, a trap for them. And the warning for us is, hey, don't get distracted and waste your life by living like those who don't love heaven. Don't get caught up in making your life about pursuing and acquiring earthly things. Don't get caught up in chasing your lusts or letting the stresses and worries of this life cause you to lose focus on what really matters. Heaven matters, eternity matters. And we're going to be with the Lord one day. Live for those realities. Verse 36, Jesus says, Again, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
The oldest manuscripts don't say that you may be counted worthy. They actually say that you may have strength. Pray always that you may have strength to resist the temptation to get caught up in your lusts and the cares of this life. We're told to stay alert, stay focused, keep our eyes on heaven and remember what it is we're living for. Don't get caught up in earthly worries and pursuits. Pray continually for the help and hope of the Holy Spirit for his strength so that when we stand before Jesus one day, we won't do so full of regret and shame, mumbling, I thought I had more time to get my priorities straight. I thought I had more time to start living for heaven. And if you will turn back in your Bibles to the previous book, to Mark chapter 13. This is like an old school sword drill for those of you who grew up in church in Sunday school where it'd be first person to get there, you'd hold up your Bible, say you got it, don't do that. But Mark, Mark chapter 13. Some of you are like, I know I'm not gonna do it because it would be no contest. Of course I'd be the first one. Verse 33 in Mark 13. Take heed, and here's the command again, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority, underline authority, to his servants, and to each his work, underline work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch, underline watch. The doorkeeper was the servant who guarded the outer door to the house, and waited expectantly for the master's return. When the master returned, his job was to welcome him, unlock the door and let him into the home and basically convey to the master that they had been expecting him and they were glad that he was there. That's the picture Jesus gives for you and I regarding his coming for his church. And just notice, you can do a deeper study into this on your own time, but notice the three things that Jesus says he wants us to be concerned with while he's away. The first is exercising authority. His authority to be exact. You know, we live and stand on the authority of his word, the word of our master Jesus. We cling to his promises. We speak them out. We bind up and speak against the things that are against his word and we loose, we bless the things that are of his word. The promises of God's word are our authority that he has left with us as he returned to heaven. And so we're called to exercise that authority to stand on those promises and live in the name and power of Jesus. Secondly, we're called to do the work that we've been given to do it. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So Jesus says, while I'm gone, I don't want you to only be watching. I want you to be working as well. I want you to be living up to the potential that I've put in you, the calling I've placed on your life. I want you to be making a difference in your family, in your friends, in your community. I got work for you to do. Don't check out. And then finally he says he wants us to be watching for his return. He wants us to be watching. He wants us to be exercising his authority. He wants us to be doing the work he's left us to do and he wants us to watch for his return. Verse 35, the command again, watch. Therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch, watch. The picture here is the only reason that the doorkeeper would be sleeping is if he didn't actually think that the master was gonna come back, at least not then. Last Bible flip we'll be doing today. Let's flip back to Matthew 24, verse 45. Back to Matthew 24, verse 45. 
Jesus says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Saying, hey, the faithful and wise student is the one the master has left in his household who is making sure that everyone who needs food is, is fed, is fed the word, is encouraged, is told, reminded the master is coming. If you're watching for the master's coming and you're living your life ready for his return, the master Jesus, according to him himself, is gonna bless you in incredible ways. The picture is the master of the house returning to find the good and faithful servant has the table set, the meal ready, the bed made, the fireplace going. Everything is ready for the master's return. And Jesus says, live like that. Live ready for me to come for you. Jesus doesn't want to show up to rapture us and have our reaction be like a spontaneous visit by an unwelcome relative. Jesus, now, seriously? Ah, oh, come on. Wow, I mean, what a surprise. So good you're here, so good you're here. He wants us to be living in such a way that when he comes for us, our response will be, yes, I've been expecting you. I've been waiting for you. I'm so glad you're finally here. I'm ready, I'm ready. Some say that the evil servant Jesus is about to talk about next is a picture of the non-believer, but I tend to disagree because he's still considered a servant. And I don't think Jesus expects non-believers to live in expectancy of his coming, but I do think he expects us to. So this evil servant would seem to me to be a believer who sort of lost the plot a little bit. Let's read together verse 48. But if that evil servant, underline evil servant, says in his heart, and then underline this, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus talks about a person who's hanging out with those who are indulging in their lustful desires. He's chosen to make his social circle people who are just pursuing lust, pursuing pleasure with no concern about being in sin. And he talks about the servant who's doing the same thing along with them. And apparently this person's also abusing his fellow servants. He's mistreating his fellow servants. And those are things that we do when we lose our fear of the Lord. What does the Bible say about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, track with me here. When you lose your fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of the opposite of wisdom. It's the beginning of foolishness. When you lose your fear of the Lord, it is the beginning of foolishness. You're unable to make wise choices when you don't fear God. And in our foolishness, we begin to indulge our lusts because we foolishly believe there'll be no consequences. And we abuse and we, we mistreat people because we believe there's no urgent need for us to treat people well. We can get around to doing that later on. It's, it's not like Jesus is gonna come back today. It's not like Jesus is gonna come and like deal with me because I was a little harsh with somebody. A fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. A lack of fear leads to foolishness. It's true in my life. It's true in your life as well. Make a note of this. Unchecked sin and mistreating others are symptoms of a lack of fear of the Lord. 
Unchecked sin and mistreating others are symptoms of a lack of fear of the Lord. You see, we don't treat people with love and grace and mercy and honor because we think they deserve that. We treat people that way because of how the Lord values them. That's how the Lord has treated them. That's how he's treated us. And so we value people based on the way the Lord values them, not even on the way that we value them, but the way the Lord does. When we don't fear the Lord, we begin treating people by whether or not we value them. There are only two servants in this illustration Jesus gives. So which are you? The good and faithful servant who's watching and living ready for the master's return or the servant who says, eh, he's not coming back anytime soon. So I'm going to indulge my lusts. I'm going to chase other things in this free time I have before the master comes back. Let's address this. When Jesus speaks of what will happen to the evil servant in verse 51, is he saying he's going to be sent to help? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It means that he's been indulging his lust and mistreating others because he didn't expect the master's return. And so the result of that is going to be that his reward is going to be the same as the hypocrites. In other words, he's going to get no reward. He's going to make it into heaven, but when there's rewards handed out, he's not going to get any. He'll be cut in two. We know not literally because you can't weep and gnash your teeth if you've been cut in two and you're dead. It means he's going to be devastated when he realizes the foolishness of his life choices. The phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth is a Hebrew term for extreme disappointment. It doesn't necessarily refer to hell. This evil servant will weep and gnash his teeth in disappointment, regret, and frustration when he realizes immediately, standing before Jesus, that he lived his life with the wrong priorities. He wasted his life. I wasn't living for the Lord. I wasn't watching for the Lord. I thought I had more time. It will be the regret of a man who is in heaven but realizes he wasted his whole life. He wasted it. It's sobering stuff. There's only two servants in this illustration Jesus gives. Which servant are you? Which one are you? Have you noticed how Jesus has been emphasizing things like faithfulness, watchfulness, stewardship, expectancy, and preparedness? throughout what we studied today, throughout the whole Olivet Discourse. To me, it's clear and obvious that Jesus wants his disciples, you and I, to be watching and longing for his coming. I really don't know how you can read the Olivet Discourse and not come to that conclusion, that he wants us to be watching. How many times just today have we heard him say, watch, watch, watch. He wants our expectation of his coming to motivate us to live for him in a radical way on a daily basis. That's what he's been telling us in today's study. He wants our expectation of his coming to motivate us to live in a radical way because we really believe he could come back today. What do I want him to find me doing? What do I want him to find me spending my life on? And even though this conversation took place almost 2,000 years ago, it's clear that Jesus wanted the expectation of his return to motivate his disciples, the ones he was actually talking to in person then, after he returned to heaven. There's no question he wanted them to be motivated by what he was telling them then. The concept that Jesus is teaching of expectancy leading to motivation and faithfulness, the idea that Jesus could return at any time, that concept is called in Christianity the doctrine of imminence. It's simply the belief that Jesus coming for his church is imminent. It could happen at any time. 
We know from the way that Jesus is talking to his disciples here, he wanted them to live under the doctrine of imminence. And as you read the whole rest of the New Testament, Paul and James and everything, Peter, it becomes clear that Jesus wanted the church, the early church, all the way up to the church today to live under the doctrine of imminence. It's throughout the whole New Testament. Because when you really believe that Jesus could come back at any minute, it dramatically changes the way you live. It changes your behavior, it changes your motivations, it changes your priorities. So make a note of this. Jesus desires all believers to live under the doctrine of imminence. He desires all believers, including you and I, to live under the doctrine of imminence because it changes the way we live. Now, this is where it gets very, very interesting if you weren't with me yet. If you believe in the rapture of the church, you believe he's gonna come for his church, but you believe it's gonna happen halfway through the seven years, Daniel's 70th week, or you believe it's gonna happen at the end of the great tribulation, then you've got a real problem because you've denied the doctrine of imminence. Because if you hold to those views, there are some things that absolutely have to take place before Jesus can come back. So he can't come back today if you hold to that view. If you believe in mid-trib, which means that the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week are gonna take place, then right before the great tribulation, the really bad stuff happens, you're gonna be raptured. That's called mid-trib, the belief that halfway through those seven years, that's when the rapture's gonna happen. If you believe in that, or if you're post-trib, that means you believe that it's gonna happen at the end of the whole seven years, at the end of the great tribulation then it's impossible for Jesus to come back today because Antichrist has to rise to prominence on the world stage, broker a peace treaty with Israel, rebuild and then desecrate the temple all before the rapture can occur. So problematically, if you hold to a mid-trib or post-trib rapture, that puts you on the side of the evil servant who says, my master is delaying his coming because Jesus can't come back today if you hold to one of those positions. It's only if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, if you believe that the first event that happens in the end times intense period is the rapture. Jesus takes his church before the seven years even begins. It's only if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, which we do, that you can still hold to the doctrine of imminence. We believe Jesus will come for his church before the 70th week of Daniel. If you don't know what that is, listen to the last few weeks of messages before Antichrist rises to prominence, and before all those things that take place, which means Jesus could come for his church at any time. Dr. Donald Barnhouse, the great preacher and writer and pastor, used to tease some of his college students who held to these views by coming into the classroom at the beginning of the day, shaking his head and saying, sad day, sad day, Jesus can't come back today. Am I saying that if you hold to a mid-trib or post-trib position, then you are an evil servant? No. But you might be. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All I'm saying is that according to the words of Jesus in the Bible, I don't think you want to be on the side of the evil servant. And holding to a mid-trib or post-trib position puts you on the evil servant's side. The servant who says, my master delays his coming. So if you're there, come and join us on the blessed side. Come and be the good and faithful servant, the servant that's watching for and expecting his return at any moment. I wanna be the blessed servant, don't you? I wanna be the blessed servant. Now let's be clear, because I just wanted to be thorough in this. We know today that there were a few things that needed to happen before we could really consider ourselves to be living in the end times. 
We know from prophecies throughout the Old Testament and from the words of Jesus that Israel would need to become a country again and they'd need to have control of the city of Jerusalem. So, so how can the doctrine of imminence work if there actually were things that needed to take place in order for the end times to really get underway? How could Jesus tell his disciples in 32 AD about all these signs that would come before their coming and then tell them to live in the expectation it could happen at any minute? Are you tracking with me? So Jesus describes things that are going to take place in the end times. When the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, how does John, the apostle, go on living under the doctrine of imminence when Jesus has told him, hey, the temple's got to be rebuilt before all this stuff can happen? Well, my personal belief is that the Holy Spirit caused the disciples and believers throughout the centuries to hear only what they needed to hear from God's word in order to keep themselves living under the doctrine of imminence. So even though we read this and we go, oh, it's clear uh, Israel had to be a political nation again before the end times could begin, I really don't believe that that clicked in the minds of believers who lived earlier than the 20th century. And I think that was intentional by the Holy Spirit. Because when you study church history, you find that even though the Bible makes it really clear, we've talked about this in the last few weeks, that Israel has to be a nation again. Jerusalem has to be under their control for the end times to begin. You find the church living in expectancy of Christ's return for the whole last 2,000 years. The Lord seems to have hidden that insight from his church for at least 1,900 almost of the last 2,000 years to preserve the doctrine of imminence. However, in the book of Daniel, we read something really interesting. See, Daniel received these incredible prophecies that we've studied in places like Daniel 9 and Daniel 12. But in Daniel 12, at the end of all these prophecies about the end times, the angel who's relaying these prophecies to Daniel says this in Daniel 12:4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And many Bible scholars agree, and so do I, that the angel is telling Daniel, hey, Daniel, listen, your prophecies, they're going to be sealed up. Many are going to go to and fro. A lot of stuff is going to happen. A lot of time is going to pass. But then, knowledge is going to increase. So until the time of the end, this stuff is pretty much going to be sealed up. People are going to read it, but they're not going to perceive it. Then in this future time, the time of the end, knowledge shall increase. In other words, God is going to give knowledge and insight to his people in the end times to understand Bible prophecy. And we talked about one of those guys being Sir Robert Anderson who wrote the book The Coming Prince in the late 19th century, the late 1800s, where he began studying scripture and he said, how have people not noticed this? This is really clear. Israel is going to become a nation again. It's going to be a political nation. And he wrote that 60, 65 years before it happened when it was a laughable idea. And how come nobody figured that out for the last 1900 years? How come nobody figured it out? And then it happened in 1948. I really believe the reason nobody figured it out is because the Holy Spirit had sealed that up because he had said, listen, you believers living in the first three centuries of the church under persecution, you don't need to know that this isn't gonna happen till the 20th century. You need the encouragement of living under the doctrine of imminence today because it's gonna make you live radical for Jesus and you'll never regret doing that. 
You'll reap rewards for eternity for living that way. And I really believe that that is what has taken place. God has chosen to conceal certain prophetic things from his church until the time of the end which we're living in and then he's revealed them to us who are living in these final generations. I think that's exactly what happened. Well, Jeff, you've been talking about the rapture for for years now. And the people you listen to and study with have been talking about it for decades. Heck, I might, you might die before Jesus comes back. And you're right about all of that. So you admit you could be wrong? No. Look through history at all of the great saints who lived their lives expecting the coming of Christ. I'm glad to be counted among the disciples. I'm glad to be counted alongside the apostle Paul St. Francis, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, even though it didn't happen in their lifetime because nobody looks at those guys and says, what fools. Man, did they ever waste their life. Man, did Spurgeon waste his life preaching all those messages and leading all those people to Christ. What a, what a chump. Nobody says that. There's nothing lost by living your life on fire and passionate for God because you believe Jesus is coming back at any time. It makes me live every day longing for the Lord. It stops me from getting caught up in and freaked out by world events and turmoil. And it causes me to live for eternity and prioritize my life in line with the kingdom rather than the things of this world. There's no downside to living under the expectancy of Christ's return, no downside. And then I just ask again, which servant are you? Which servant are you this morning? Maybe you started strong in the faith and you were going strong for years, but you've just settled in a, in a malaise, a comfort level where your faith isn't growing, your passions died down, and time just seems to be passing. And I believe Jesus would say to you as he says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, Go back and do the things you did at first when you first began your relationship with the Lord. Get in the word like you used to. Talk to him throughout the day like you used to. Worship with passion and wholeheartedness like you used to and you'll find your heart begin to come back to life again. And if there's something in your life that's weighing you down, slowing you down and and holding you back, man, get rid of it. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about sin issues. Get rid of it. Live radical for the Lord. And if you've never lived seriously for Jesus, if you've never been radical for him, start today. Man, the king is coming. And he's coming soon. And if you live that way and it takes decades before our Lord returns, all you will have done is lived for the things that really matter. You will have missed out on nothing And you will have gained so much in heaven where it will last and you'll enjoy it for eternity. You know, I love the Lord so much for caring enough to sit you and I down in 2016 and through his word have a heart to heart with us. And he's being firm because he cares about us so much. He he cares enough to say to you and I, brother, sister, I'm pleading with you. I'm warning you. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. One day I'm gonna come for you one way or another and I want that moment to be the greatest moment of your life, not your moment of greatest regret and disappointment. Jesus has been honest and upfront and clear with each of us 
And my prayer this morning is that he'll give us ears to hear what his spirit is saying to you and I. That we may profit for eternity from a life well lived, a life lived for our master, Jesus, who's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And, and Father, we, we pray for ourselves this morning. Lord, I pray for myself. And you just echo this in your own heart if this is true for you as well. Father, I pray you would help me to not waste my life, to not waste a day, to not waste an hour, to not waste a minute, but to invite you into everything I do, to share each moment with you, to, to have a consciousness and an awareness of you throughout the day, to be led and, and guided in everything that I do by your spirit, Lord. And Lord, I'm, I'm asking that you would speak loud enough for me to hear, that you would align my priorities with your priorities. Lord, none of us want to waste our lives. None of us want an empty, fruitless season. Lord, help us to be fruitful in this life. And, we just humbly say that we're here right now in this moment. We've set aside this time to hear from you and invite you that, that if we're not aimed at the right things, if our priorities are off, Lord, correct them by your spirit right now. Speak to us, God. We invite you and we ask you to do that, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.